Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward and I'm here today with my co-presenter Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuto Interiors, to find out how to run a successful interior design business overseas, even in these most difficult of times. Laura Hammett Interiors' tagline is detail-driven luxury, and you can tell from their work that this mantra is subliminally embedded into every project that they do. The London-based studio was established in 2009 by husband and wife team Aaron and Laura Hammett and has since expanded into a global design powerhouse undertaking complex residential projects for demanding private clients all over the world. If it's true that the devil is in the detail, how do Laura and her team manage to maintain their exacting luxury standards when working across the globe? On today's podcast, we are fortunate indeed to be joined by both Aaron and Laura to find out exactly how they do it. Welcome to the Interior Design Business. Right, welcome to the show, Aaron and Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good to be here. And can I start by asking, how did Laura Hammett Interiors become the practice it is today? Well, it started off very modestly um, back in 2008, and it was actually started by myself. Um, It wasn't the big interior design launch that lots of other companies seem to have. Um, I started very small and actually um, making cushions and selling them on eBay. That's essentially how all of this started right at the beginning. Um, And that was just because I needed um, to make some money and personal circumstances meant that I couldn't hold down a job at the time. So um, I started very small and it then grew into an online store selling a few other interior products. I then had an amazing opportunity to um, share a um, empty shop space with a friend. So we did that in a very makeshift way. Um, and then I bought in a few clients that way, just by passers by coming in to buy something. And then we would get chatting and then I would do some upholstery for them or a bathroom design. And it grew very, very organically from there. Um, and then Aaron joined in 2011. Um, I was very much a one man band until that point. There was only so much I could do on my own. And he came in um, as my kind of, obviously we were together at the time and he was very much a kind of business mentor of me and a design mentor for me outside of work. And it just made perfect sense that he would then kind of join forces. Yeah, it was it was quite harmoniously coming together. My, yeah. I mean, my background is product design. So I work for a big product design studio doing below the line advertising and retail and, and product design. And in the background, through our relationship, we were kind of working together and I was inputting into Laura's business, you know, as it was as it was growing. And it just came to a point of circumstance with our first child and my business situation that we came together. And and, Laura had a really good grounding of clients that she started to work with, not just small upholstery jobs, bathroom refurbishments. And then then we grew getting some developer work. And and from there, that's really where it started to the business started to actually become a business and its brand and has changed how we've worked over the years and adding the steps of adding staff, Mm -hmm. taking on private clients, 
you know, then you know, looking social media, advertising, PR platforms. And then that's how we started to you know, get bigger projects and expand to overseas territories. So it's been a, a process of organically growing and it's happened because we've done each step carefully, but it's it's been a long process. I wouldn't yeah. Be, yeah. And also, I think one thing we've we've never advertised, we've always just um, grown our client base in more of a kind of word of mouth recommendations we've managed to um you know do repeat work with developers at the beginning and then we were also doing projects for clients who have multiple homes so i think that's initially what took us overseas um where we were doing a project within the uk for a family and then they would then ask us to go overseas and work on one of their other projects and that um you know and then friends of friends and so i think it's happened organically but um but, hum know. but humble beginnings you know i imagine like i didn't know laura but sitting in her little her home <laughs> studio st hand stitching cushions and very entrepreneurial even at that start to get the business you know from there and where it is today so. i mean i think it's safe to say i didn't in a million years have a plan of this i mean i didn't even think beyond um, you know, paying my rent at that point, to be honest. So it's a surprise to me. <laughs> did you study interior design? I did. I studied interior architecture at Brighton University. I did have the training and I did work for two designers um, beforehand and for, you know, small studios. So I was very hands-on. I got to really um, do every aspect of a project. So I wasn't completely kind of blind to it, but I definitely... Um, you know, hadn't done anything on my own before. And, you know, that's why starting with small projects was was right for me. Sorry, and and you want to do it your way. Yeah, and I do like to do things. <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't say I think Aaron knows this best. Um, yeah, I do. I do have my strong ideas and I do like to get stuff done. So, yeah, I mean, it worked. I think I was I was naturally going to run a business of some sort, I think. It does sound like it. So how much today, is, how much of your work's UK based and how much would you say, what's percentage wise, what's the split? So we're about 50% UK based, 50% overseas. And, and that's not just one territory, that's multiple territories. So we're, we're working in about 10 different countries at the moment, which is um, quite considerable, but it's actually, I think with the effects of COVID, it's actually made the world a smaller place and made that communication and working those territories actually actually easier. So yeah, it's about 50, 50, 50 and less travel this year, which has been helpful. But, <laughs> it's been helpful for but, us personally, definitely. And has that varied over time, that balance? Has it been more in the past? And you know, what you... Yeah. We're, we're at the, the, this is the maximum number of mm. overseas. It has just grown and grown. Mm. And I think because the more overseas projects we have, the more, potential new clients can see that we have the capability to work in these different countries mm. It widens our audience. So, you know, one day we could have, you know, we've got a project in Hong Kong, but also in India and in the States. So it, it, it doesn't, we can appeal to lots of different markets and, and it also helps that our aesthetic isn't necessarily kind of a cookie cutter um, design. We, it's obviously very much tailored to each of the different geographies and clientele and projects. So do you think that that's the key to your success, the, the aesthetic being so appealing to people from different cultures and, and different countries? I think so. Um, I think that's one of the reasons, yes. I mean, when we've designed in the UK before we went overseas, I think we were always very mindful of who the client was and 
their culture. I mean, a lot of our client base within the UK is international. Um, and also working with developers. As soon as you hit Prime Central London, you're often targeting international buyers. So um, you have to lend yourself to a more international aesthetic. Um, and I think that's something that we're just very passionate about anyway. We don't like to kind of force a design style on a property if it doesn't suit the nature of that property or that client. So I think for us, we like to really kind of take the brief and really understand that brief and understand the client and tailor each project um, and really absorb ourselves in that. So I think that's reflected in our work. And I think our, our current work that we're doing is, is even more varied than our finished completed portfolio. Um, so yeah, I think that is definitely part of but it. it. But it always does have an underlying essence of contemporary English design and that mm. British design. And I think that's what clients are also coming to you know, you know, I think being you know, a London-based British design company and British design companies as a whole are probably one of the most respected and renowned group of designers in the world. And people you know, in the last couple of years have probably wanted that more. I was gonna say, if you're, if you're doing multiple houses for the same people in different jurisdictions, you need to, I suppose, take a borrow a bit of that sense of place. Otherwise, you end up giving them the same thing over and over and over because it's the same thing, the same needs. So, in fact, I guess your only point of differentiation at that place is the location. Except, I suppose, the climate's going to have a major impact on that as well. Yeah, it does, and I think also the client wants. Um, to feel different when they're there. So they are the same client, but they're in a different mindset. So um, for example, we're doing a project in Cap d'Antibes for a client and in London, they have a very smart London aesthetic, um, but in South of France, they want it to be very relaxed and paired back. And it's quite a different feel in every sense. We know that their kind of requirements in terms of, you know, what they like in their kitchen, the functionality of the house is obviously the same. But their lifestyle and their mood is so different in that different location. So it's a completely almost a new project altogether. And then I just was picking up this point again about uh, your idea of, of detail driven luxury. Do you want to just expand on that? What do you actually mean by that? I would say we're, we're it's more focused on on the, the detail driven part rather than the luxury part. I think luxury now is more of a dilute, diluted term that's happened over the past few years but for us we like the, the detail is everything that runs for a business whether it is a detail in the finishes a, a detail of how functional items should be a detail of how materials meet each other but it's also running through the complete business so the detail of how we put our drawings together the detail of how we communicate with our clients and 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 I was always taught right from my college days right through to, to being in industry that everything should be designed whether it's a spreadsheet or whether it's your communication or whether it's your design right from yeah from the detailing of the design right through to the actual function of it so I think it's that's at the core of our business and that detail is is more of a a simple detail rather than overly designed or overly complicated detail so when it's I see it all but I, I know from some of your images you know, it's, it's all about things like beautiful inlays and amazing detailing within. So the door of the joinery piece might be really plain, but there'll be something just amazing that just lifts it that little bit. Exactly. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be obvious. And it's yeah. it's that and it's more now. I think luxury is about for us now. It's about being more paired back and it's about 
everything coming together holistically to give you that sense of luxury. But luxury isn't about, you know, inlays here and opulent marbles. It's not about that for us. It's about being paired back, combining materials really interestingly in good combinations but done in a way that doesn't seem overly ostentatious mm. and, and, and seen in our drawings. If you look at our drawing packages, they're very detail driven and they're very about what the content of that drawing is. So everyone can read it and everyone can understand it and everyone can implement it. Yeah, but it's also, it's thinking through every final detail. So, you know, there's no stone left unturned with our design, whether it be architectural, whether it be joinery, bathroom design, kitchen design, right through to furniture and styling. So, um, you know, a junction detail that might be very specific on the joinery might then be replicated in a slightly different scale on a piece of furniture in the same room. It's those little, um, things that aren't obvious when you walk into a room. It's not right there for you to see, but it's something that slowly reveals itself to you. I think that's why the word subliminal kind of got lodged in my brain when I was trying to write the introduction was that it just seemed to me that that was, that was exactly right, that you kind of walk in and think you just absorb the details almost by osmosis. Exactly. So you, it feels amazing, but you don't necessarily say it's because of that amazing light feature instantly. It's, it's a combination of everything all together. And that's why we our favorite types of projects are when we're involved from day one right through to the end. So we'll do the full interior architecture package and then all of the furnishing and styling as well. Uh, it doesn't mean to say that we don't do just architectural projects and just furnishing projects, we do, but um, much more commonly it's the full process. And that's where I think we're most successful. Wonderful. So talking about your overseas work, what would you say are the biggest challenges for an interior designer in, in working overseas? I mean, there's, there's quite a lot, <laughs> um, but, it's, but every, every single geography and every single project has its nuances. And I think the success in working overseas is about understanding those upfront and making sure you know you're very you've done your research you know who you're working with you know the local policies the insurance rates all these kind of things and then getting the right team on board in terms of project project managers architects contractors but it's i think it's about making sure you've done your groundwork and your research before before you jump head first in, into something and you know, we we have done that before but you know, the more and more projects you do, you know, you know what to look out for, know how to set up the project and how to communicate to the client when setting up the project. These are the these are the things that you need to do, and these are the things that we need in order to make this project successful. Yeah. Is that something they teach you at interior design school? No, of course no, not. No. <laughs> of course not. I mean, I think some of it's just, you know, it's learning kind of, you know, throughout the process, but it's also, I think to a point, it's just common sense. It's really making sure, I mean, we're very big on, you know, transparency and being very open and upfront with our clients from day one. So we'll have those, we have lots of um, meetings with potential clients um, talking about overseas projects. And we're very clear about, you know, who they need to hire to make the project successful and, um, giving them pointers in that sense. Um, but I think as well, there's, you know, we, we've worked in such a detailed way um, for so long that actually there isn't a huge amount of difference in terms of the process really and what we deliver. It's very similar to a project that could be in the same city because um, that level of information is needed wherever you are. I think the probably one of the biggest struggles we've had in certain places is quality of craftsmanship. I think joinery 
um, can be quite challenging. And we've had some clients who've actually wanted to bring in a European joiner um, to, to transport everything over and fit it because it's just, it's worth it. Um, so I think, you know, finding the right trades, I think is the hardest. At certain jurisdictions, there must be some nightmare places. Where would you say are the toughest places to work? What, what sort of barriers do you encounter? It goes back to the nuances. It, you know, in, in, in somewhere like France, it's also getting used to the local, how to put this in a nice way, local cultural differences between ways of working. But also, I mean, there it's very interesting because there's different setups on the insurance side. So making sure that the way that the architect is set up and the insurance levels set up and the responsibility you're taking on as a designer, it's more what could come back to you if you don't understand what the barriers are. I don't think any, you know, we've worked in know, a lot of different countries with a lot of different sets. I wouldn't say anyone was particularly difficult. They're all very interesting. India was amazingly fascinating, a completely different culture. We had to learn about Vastu principles and we worked with um, a Vastu specialist over there talking about you know, how to lay out houses and, and how changes we had to make to what our plan we thought was right and direction of things. So it, I think being a, a good designer and a good design company is about listening and learning. Mm -hmm. um, and the detail and and if you listen and you learn you can then implement your design and your way of working within that geography or, and and that strategy yeah so, i think you need to be that bit more flexible yeah um you can't be too rigid in your processes because it's going to be a different process in a different country yeah there must be differences between cultures in how they how they eat how they sleep how they live that from a, a European or Western perspective, you know, we might think, well, everybody does it like us, but absolutely they do not, do they? No, they don't. And actually that's something we really enjoy is at the beginning, I mean, quite often we'll go, for example, we did a trip to New Delhi to see some clients out there and we um, had loads of meals with them when we were there, including at their house, their existing house. Um, and that was lovely. And it's really interesting. We learned lots of small things like, you know, when we were having a drink before dinner, um, they have small snacks brought to them over in the living room before you sit down for dinner. Those little things, you just need to kind of immerse yourself in their world um, to be able to design those little details that they won't necessarily think to tell you. Yeah. Um, so I think it just comes down to that client relationship and how important that is. Yeah, and taking a, taking a good brief, you know, yeah. taking a good brief. If you don't Always take a good brief, you're not set up for the rest of the, the, the project. So it's about asking the right questions. Yeah spending time with them but yeah there's lots of differences between where they cook where they have their toilets how what types of toilets they have and also prayer um, rooms we've designed yeah. prayer rooms they're all you know very varied in location and yeah significance so it's it's interesting I mean we really enjoy um being thrown a challenge um you know I think we get this point in the business I I personally would feel a little um bored maybe if I was doing the same kinds of projects in the same place I think um, it keeps us you know feeling like we're just constantly evolving and learning yeah. it's, it's exciting. Once you've taken this all-important brief and you've got hopefully those details nailed how do you then go about organizing what are the next kind of steps I mean Aaron you touched on you know making sure that the clients are you, you give the clients a list of things that they need to sort out so what sort of what sort of things are we talking about here how how firm are you I suppose with your clients? 
I mean, I mean, the those questions hopefully would have been answered before we get to the briefing point. So, I mean, the main one you know that we want to understand is what is the what is the team setup in terms of external consultants? Things like how are you going to manage your and these are actually questions we ask UK based clients as well, but we can be a bit more forceful and we're a bit more on the ground. So it's, you know, what kind of project management setup do you have? Are you managing the project yourself or will you have an external project manager? Who is going to manage the time and the cost of the project? Are you going to have a quantity surveyor? If you're making any structural changes, do you have an architect or do you need us to bring in an architect? So those sort of like practical questions, which also take the responsibility away from us on the, on the things that we shouldn't be responsible for. So we know when we're going into that briefing stage that all those consultants are, are in order and then we can ask the right questions and concentrate on the interior architecture and the furnishing design part of the project. And what about the communication channels that you have with your client and your office and the on-site team? Talk us through that if you can. So there's multiple communication channels and I think there's they go from formal to, to informal. You know, there's, there's the basic practical things like, you know, Dropbox and file sharing, which allows a team to set up file sharing folders with you know, site photos dropped in and you know, very structured terms of communication. You know, Microsoft Teams and Zoom have been fantastic you know, to make, um, make the presentations go smoother and how we share the, you know, the presentations with our clients. Um, and then there's things like clients tend to love using WhatsApp. So, <laughs> so, and that's actually a very difficult one to manage because it doesn't have a clear flow of communication. So you know, make sure you export, make sure you're always following up with emails after a WhatsApp conversation, all those kinds of things. Um, it's also quite nice sometimes to have that more informal um, communication with them because they might be in a hotel and send you something that they love and they might forget to tell you that otherwise. So it's not all bad. It just means that we have to be very thorough with our follow-up and our documentation of that. And then all I was going to say was that the I had a conversation recently with um, with relation in relation to WhatsApp um, with a, a professional indemnity insurance person who said that it, it, it completely freaks them out. Don't do it is what their advice is. So fine for sending photographs, but you know, if you're relying on WhatsApp for your communications, you will die. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, exactly. But it's, but it's, you know, I think, I think actually what's been great is those forms of communication that we had established before COVID and before yeah. lockdown have actually helped us communicate with our clients now. So yeah. we've got three clients who we've got new projects with who we've actually never met in the UK. So, you know, we can fully run a project from the briefing stage concepts, design development, you know, without actually being there and, you know, being, I mean, it's obviously not as good but it was just saying those those ways we've communicated have been established and it's actually working very smoothly. Yeah, it's almost like we had a bit of a head start with COVID because we're so used to doing Zoom presentations, um, building up that rapport in, in what is, you know, everyone's feeling this kind of disconnection, um, but it's, you just have to work that bit harder to build up that relationship, yeah. but also sending, you know, we're always sending boxes of samples, hard samples to people in Hong Kong or, anywhere in the world and then they will be opening those boxes going through the samples at the same time as us doing our virtual presentation we've been doing that for so long that covid's kind of not changed that all that much so you've had a real head start in a way yeah i think so yeah 
And what about actual resources that those projects overseas consume? Does it consume more time than a UK project or less time? Uh, I think the time that you spend on a project isn't necessarily dependent on the geography, it's dependent on the client. So, you know, you could get a client who is very uh, hands off and, you know, trust you right from the beginning. Once they've seen the concept, they don't see anything else to do your technical pack. But there's other clients who want to be very much involved. And, and, and those are the ones which take more time, whether it's in Hong Kong, India, Surrey, central London. Um, so we resource the same on all our projects throughout the design phases. Um, at the start of a project. And do you find that most of your overseas clients, do they tend to have their own local architects and contractors or, or do you often find yourself in a situation where you're trying to assemble those professional teams from a distance? It's about 50-50. Some, some will have already have an architect on board or have a recommendation for someone. In other cases, we have helped source an architect or a project manager or, or specifically a, a, a QS. So it, it depends on the, the project. And also, you know, a lot of clients have done projects before, so they, they know what they need before they even get started. So it, it, like the UK, it varies. And do you find that those people that are perhaps already on the ground in those countries and those jurisdictions are, are happy to kind of work with you? They, they're, they're happy with the information that you're producing and that they're happy to slot you into their team? Or do you find that there's some resentment sometimes? Um, I don't think, I think it's more about, yes, if you have clear communication and they can see the benefit in working with someone like Laura Hammett, you know, we're very upfront when we start a project, we, we share a lot of our typical details and drawing packages and, and our process, which gives people comfort that we are a credible company and, you know, the designs and information we're producing is going to help them as a team. You know, you're, you're always going to work in situations where, you know, consultants don't necessarily you know, aren't aligned, but most of the time that, that's, that's not a problem and we're all working there as a team for the client at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'd say as well, Aaron's particularly good at um, dealing with people. I think that's one of his strongest, strongest suits. So it's, um, you know, I think making sure that you're managing each person within the team in the right way, that we're not stepping on toes, that we're working together. Um, because I think there, there can be conflict between certain parties, architects and material designers, for example. Um, but I think we're very clear at the beginning about what our remit is, what their remit is. And it's kind of just making sure there's that mutual respect from day one. Um, you know, it's not always possible. Um, there are so many different personalities out there, but I think um, Aaron's very, very good at handling that side yeah. of things. I mean, our ethos is, it's, it comes down to the ethos as a business, you know, there's, there's no prima donnas, there's no egos within Laura Hammett, and that goes right through the team. And that's when we're hired by a client, they know our personalities and they generally assemble a team that fits. You know, we're not going to go in throwing our weight around and, and you know, pushing our, our design on everyone. It's, it's, it's very much, you know, we're part of a team process. We like to work in collaboration with other consultants for the benefit of the client. But I also think there's, it probably happens quite naturally as well. If a client chooses us, um, they're bound to choose us based a little bit off that dynamic that we bring. Um, so they're probably then gonna choose other consultants for the same reason. 
I think, you know, we're not, I don't think we appeal to people who want that kind of bulldozer designer who comes in and tells them this is what you need to have, you know, that kind of personality, that's just not who we are. And if you do have to go out and assemble the team from from here, you know, you're looking for that that elusive, trustworthy contractor in the south of France, where do you start? How do you go about finding them? I think it's it's contacts. I mean, yeah. we've we've got a great list of contacts within the industry, um, which is growing all the time internationally. Um, we've also had some, you know, great opportunities with friends who've lived. You know, for example, I've got a very good friend who lives in Hong Kong who's um, been able to recommend people that he's known. Um, so I think it's just um, building up a network yeah. that you trust, um, because somebody's recommendation is always better personal recommendation than something you've found online yeah every, every i think every single consultant contractor we have recommended has been as a direct result of someone we know in the uk or a friend of a, of a friend of a friend i think one thing that would uh, terrify a lot of designers would be handling payments taxation issues credit getting getting money from their client even when they need to when they're overseas and how you how, how do you manage that uh i mean payments is like any uk payment you just make sure you have a very structured payment process that you're never really in arrears and it's done at stages of the process throughout the design you know throughout the design process really so you know if there is any default on that payment then you know you you have the ability to stop the design work you know and that's a lesson we learned a long time ago in the uk um you just really on other payments you just really have to be very front up front that you get paid in pounds or if you have a dollar account you get paid in dollars and that's up to you whether you, you play on the currencies um and it's and it's relatively simple, really. I think it's just understanding the VAT positions in in different countries when you're charging the, the tax, getting a good tax accountant, um, and speaking to HMRC a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, something we all enjoy, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's probably got a little bit more complicated with, you know, with with Brexit and and the VAT positions and import and export, but working with a with a a good freight forwarding company um, is really important when working and a lot and they have partners in different countries so they will help you and guide you with the different levels of import duties and taxes on, on different types of goods. And when you are working with local people you need to make sure you've got trusted people on the ground that can can look after your projects if you're not there. Exactly it's crucial. Yeah, yeah exactly and, and a lot of time you know getting ship, the, the shipping or the shipping to have partners there, it gives you much more comfort, comfort than the client trying to tell you, oh, I know I have someone who can help and bring it in. And we always try and push it towards a more you know, professional route of a known, uh, you know, known list of supplies in order to get the goods that they paid thousands of pounds for delivered as they would in the UK, you know, in one piece in impeccable order into their project. Often then would you do you always visit all your projects for example do you do a visit at the end of the first fix and then again at the end of the second fix or are there some projects that you you really don't ever almost visit at all it's all very different and it client dependent project dependent you know we would we would always insist on going to a project right at the beginning of the project which again helps with the the concept and understanding the geography understanding the client and their nuances um, but throughout a build process Ideally, yes, we would set up, you know, like in the UK, a key steps of throughout, you know, the build process and said, 
structural first fix, second fix finishes, all those kind of general sign off. But some clients, you know, we it's about obviously you have to pay to get over there, you have to pay for accommodation and flight. So sometimes we can do things remotely. And obviously at the moment we haven't been able to travel for a year. So our overseas projects, we're doing everything remotely. Which, yeah, I think they've you know, just they've had to, you know, adapt to that. Um, and it hasn't, you know, it hasn't jeopardized anything, which is really quite amazing. Um, we've obviously not been able to be there in person for an installation that happened in India, which was a shame, but I was very much involved kind of um, virtually, um, let's say, um, you know, helping them with styling and everything towards the end. So I think that's the only project that's really um you know, we've not been able to be there at the crucial time, but we've been very lucky with timing as well this year where um, everything's been at design phase in the most part. So um, we haven't needed to be there, but we've had clients who've wanted us to go out monthly, others who've just needed that visit at the beginning and at the end. So it really varies. Do you, do you end up, did you, I think you touched on this earlier, um, Laura, you were saying that you had one client that shipped all their joinery out from the UK. Do you find you send a lot of stuff out from here? Furniture, yes. I would say we still ship the majority of furniture from Europe. And that's just because you get the best quality, in my opinion. Um, I mean, when we worked in the States, we definitely did try to find as many pieces as we can locally. But actually, a lot of things are better value in Europe. And we have um, such an extensive um, list of, of suppliers and manufacturers here. So we do a lot of bespoke design. And if we keep that local, we get to go and visit factories in the production stage which is so crucial when we you know we get to make tweaks we get to test pieces out um so it gives us a lot more control we are absolute control freaks i think that's fair to say um and essentially that's what our clients kind of pay us for so we get better control when we get things produced um locally locally to us but then if you know we've had clients who've said they want everything local to them or at least um largely so that it feels very authentic to that location so it varies but a typical project would be majority being shipped from the uk over to the site and i suppose in terms of timing and things you then have to have that you you must use consolidated warehouses and things together everything together absolutely, absolutely. yeah and we we make that very clear when we're talking at the beginning about budgets that that is such a valuable part of the budget and a lot of people find that difficult to get their head around because they don't feel like they're getting anything tangible for that spend but the reality is that they actually are they're getting their pieces delivered in you know perfect condition perfect condition and it's just it's such um it is an impossible task to be honest to do it any other way you have to have that company that get everything delivered to them they unpack it check it they insure it um they then ship it or you know air freight or sea freight and they will then unpack it and install it with us on site and it's really the only way to work and we insist on it as well as a trusted team locally you've got yourselves a trusted team at Laura Hammett, which which must be, again, they, everyone's got to be pulling together on these sorts of projects, don't they? Absolutely, we have an amazing team. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't do anything that we do without them. Um, and so we've got our interior architecture team and then our FF&E team. 
and we've got a very senior team and that's very intentional because we have such high standards it's um you know it's it's essential particularly on the interior architecture side of things to have a team um running projects who really really know what they're doing um so yeah i mean we we work very collaboratively with them um they're very hands-on with us you know at every stage how many are there of you there are 15 of us in total including aaron and myself and we've we've been bigger um and we felt like we were slightly there was a bit of a disconnect between us and the projects and us and the clients but also us and the team um so this is a really good size for us we feel really comfortable with this size yeah and that allows us to you know Laura and I are involved in every single project and that is something you know whether it's you know a small furnishing job or a large multi-unit or you know mansion it's clients want to come to us because they want us involved you know and it, we're not just salespeople at the beginning who sell or have it we actually are designers who are involved and, and, and care about the project through every stage of it have you noticed that people are asking for different things since the pandemic hit um i think i've been asked this question a lot actually recently and we do have um, a lot of new clients that we've signed up since the pandemic started and i do think there's been a slight difference in the brief and i think um because of you know the obvious reason that people are really appreciating their homes even more so i think we're doing a lot more unusual things within the home and we've always done gyms and cinemas and things but i mean for example we're doing a golf simulation room at the moment um which is new to us so i think there's just people wanting to expand um how much they do in their homes so i think for we've most of our clients for the last few years have had home offices and i think that's because they're almost always entrepreneurs or they're very very high up and senior within their careers therefore they work a lot at home i think that's very typical so um the home office is now even more important um i think what was interesting is we had a phase where people weren't wanting desks in their home offices they were wanting more of that informal kind of laptop working where it might be sitting around seating areas um i think now everybody's wanting that office desk base again i think i've noticed that recently but um i think it just it's just the importance the value of home and that you know i think we've definitely got people wanting that kind of real sanctuary in their master suite they want separation from other family members everyone's on top of each other um so i think those things will stay probably once covid has passed um just because i think that's kind of just reset how we view our homes yeah and and maybe things like you no know, the 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 basic things that you thought were were good have changed like open plan living mm. may not be such a though we've yeah. there's change in a lot more compartmentalized living because each family member can get their own space so there's obviously lifestyle and wellness that everyone's put importance with but basic changes to think about how you're living in the house to have your own space and separation is now really important when when space planning a property and that's what we've done in the last three properties we've done through covid is can i get away do i have my own <laughs> space and yeah can i hear the kids shouting down the down the hall i mean it's funny because we actually have moved um during covid and moved out of london where we had a very open plan living space and the first lockdown we were i mean it was pretty tough at times homeschooling and working all essentially in the same space and now we've got this house that's just got lots and lots of separate rooms and that's not an accident i mean we are at the moment in a study with a door and it's just like a dream come true for us <laughs> um, and i think that's the case for a lot of people 
what about any business lessons that you've learned? Anything that you've changed or will change it going forwards because of the pandemic? I think it's just, you know, good financial planning mm. in a business is key to making your business successful. You know, controlling your cost, making sure you don't have too much outlay, you know, making sure you've got enough business coming in. It's it's going really back to the basics of of running a business, you know, understanding your profit and loss, understanding your balance sheets, very basic business things that actually, I didn't learn these things, or we didn't learn these things through design school. We, you know, you learn these on the job. It would, be, it would be great if they were kind of taught in some design schools from a basic level. Maybe they are now. I mean, we studied a long probably, time ago, but, but, it's, but, but maybe not. Yeah. And making decisions, making decisions quickly. You know, mm, we, yeah, we, were, yeah. we were lucky, you know, before, right at the start, we actually took our business out of the office and made everyone ho started homework. Well, we asked them if they wanted to do homework in two or three weeks before the first lockdown. So, you know, we, we preempted things, make quick decisions. Um, you know, that's going to keep making your business success and, mm. and, and don't overly grow when it's not necessary. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's just being, um, you know, able to adapt. And I think that goes, I mean, COVID's obviously, you know, been huge and everyone's had to adapt, but I think Brexit also threw some challenges, you know, our industry's way. And I think you just, you have to be flexible and you have to, um, you can't just be too set. This is how we work and this is what size we are. And this is, you know, you have to just go with the environment you're in. And I think COVID's definitely taught us that it is unpredictable. You know, you do have to be very smart at times and um, make the right decisions long-term. It's thinking about the stability long-term. And we were very clear with the team about that, that, you know, our priority was um, with their jobs. Yeah. And, um, you know, we didn't have to let anybody go. And that's that's really, really something we're very proud of because it got tough for a while at the beginning of the first lockdown for everybody and um, we heard a lot of people losing their jobs and it, we actually did it in a way where we did it with asking the staff so yeah we know, involved them in those decisions and still are really how many days yeah. do you want us to be working at home how many yeah. days do you want to go into the office are you comfortable with the, the way we're working when we go back to the office what would you like or how do you see that working so you know we, we like to see our Laura Hammett is kind of a, you know, it's a family business in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's more than just a way. Yeah. It is a family business. It's run by us as a family. And I think um, that's definitely the feel that the team have. Um, I think they would all say that, that we're, we're very open with what's happening, where we are, what we're doing. Um, and we had a lot of meetings during, you know, those that first early parts of the pandemic where things were a bit alarming and um, kept everybody um, informed. And I think that was really important. And, and we, you know, we've got lots of parents within the team. Um, so obviously homeschooling's thrown a lot of things into the mix. So it's just communicating and making sure that everybody's comfortable because we do believe that we're kind of only as, as good as our team we're only as strong as our team so um keeping that team you happy. know happy is is vital what final piece of advice would you have for interior designers who are aspiring or have been invited to work abroad we we always aspired to have an overseas project and and when we got our first one it was extremely exciting and it felt like a big benchmark for the business you know we probably went into it you know, head first you know, diving into everything and, and treating it how we would a normal project back home. But I, as I said you know, in the previous answer, it's about making sure you've done your, your research, making sure you know what kind of team setup it is, 
but it is, it's part of the excitement of being a designer to experience different cultures, different geographies, different mm. clients to learn new things. And that's, you know, that's the most exciting thing about working on, on overseas projects. Yeah, and being out of your comfort zone. I'd also add to that, that I think there's a, there's a fine line with pushing yourself, but also following your gut. I mean, we've definitely not taken certain projects that haven't felt right for various reasons, because we felt like we wouldn't be best positioned to carry the project out because of the distance. So whether that be the client not quite understanding the importance of setting up that team, wanting to cut some corners, not wanting to ship everything. So I think that's important. So it's it's a fine balance. I think you do sometimes, um, that first project you take, you sometimes do have to take a little bit of a hit in the sense of, um, you know, maybe it's not as big as you would ideally need it to be if it was in the UK, maybe it's a foot in the door. Um, and that's okay. I think that's absolutely a good way to start getting yourself known working in that location. But then at the same time, making sure you're not just getting carried away with the fact that it's an overseas project, it's a great fun location, you'd love to travel there. Um, so I think when we're selecting a project, no matter where it is, we do have a kind of very intuitive checklist where we have to make sure that, you know, is this client really respecting what we're bringing to the table? Um, do we feel like we're gonna get along? All of those kind of factors. And I think that should never change um, even if you're super excited about that project, you should always just do um, do what you feel is right for your studio. And you've got to make sure that you're going to do a good job. Yeah. And make sure you've got the correct contracts in place. Absolutely. With the correct jurisdiction. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. One final question. We know you raised a huge amount of money last year for NHS charities with your charity bedroom giveaway. Uh, what was what was the inspiration behind that? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, I think it was, you know, feeling completely helpless, like everybody was at that time. Um, I also lost my father to COVID. So I think that, you know, that that definitely kind of spurred it along a bit, um, but the project was underway before that even happened. So I think it was just, I felt like I had a platform on social media, I had an audience of people, everybody was talking about feeling like, what can we do, what can we do? And we were all stuck at home. Um, and it just felt like such a, an obvious way to, raise money. I didn't expect it to be anywhere near that amount of money, but so many of our suppliers were desperate to help too and had a bit of time because they weren't necessarily able to do their full capacity of work at the time. Um, so it just was a lovely project to work on. It was very kind of therapeutic for me, but also just a, a nice uplifting thing within the industry during what was a difficult time for everybody. I think everyone, you know, people donating, the winner obviously, but also the suppliers, felt like they were just you know involved in doing something and not just sitting there kind of watching this you know awful situation unfold. I think we all need to stay positive so well done for that. So what exciting plans have you got coming up this year? Well we've actually got something very exciting um, happening in the next couple of months. It's been in the pipeline for years now actually about two and a half years and it's something very personal to me that I've been working on. Um, so in the next couple of months there's going to be a very exciting launch. It's a slight departure to our typical core business um, which is really exciting and I will be doing some announcements probably just before it launches so I think the best thing is just to stay tuned probably to my social media. Intriguing right we will keep an eye on that and I'm sure our audience will too. This is the part of the show where we like to invite our guests 
to share um, an amusing anecdote or a, a funny experience, something that's kind of been a key thing or perhaps an awful experience, something that's happened to them in, on one of their projects. So, Erin um, and Laura, what is the funniest, strangest, most difficult situation you've ever faced when working overseas and how did you overcome it? Well, I mean, I don't think it was particularly funny at the time. Um, I'd say it was a pretty difficult situation. Um, in hindsight, we, there's some humour there. But we um, were doing a project installation. I'm not going to say where it is because um, the client doesn't actually know that this happened um, and she never needs to know. Um, that's the beauty of the industry is when you um, solve things before anybody even knows that they happened. Um, we had um, all the checks done with furniture being delivered and shipped and um, there was some um, chain alterations made to the common parts in a building that was in a very very central very kind of prestigious location um and the sofa that was bespoke did not fit um up, through, the, stairs. up the stairs so and we didn't discover that until literally the 11th hour um i think we had the handover we had the handover the next day or something so we had to and we were in a location where we didn't have our typical kind of black book of people to call on in those kinds of situations which you know things like that happen all the time um and um we couldn't get anything hoisted up through the window we looked into that option it was just going to cost an obscene amount of money and i think we wouldn't have got the permissions in time so we ended up finding through just so many routes of phone calls um a really reputable upholstery company locally who would come who came and literally in the kind of lobby of the um building dismantled the sofa took it up in parts and then rebuilt it uh, in front of us and it was a incredibly hairy moment um but it was so satisfying when it was done and it was flawless in the end and I think it was we gave ourselves a bit of a pass on the back because it was just one of those situations where you thought this is a crisis um but we solved it yeah. because I think everything can be solved you just have to keep calm find a solution yeah, if you if you just imagine that moment in Friends where Ross is trying to take yeah. the sofa <laughs> the up, the, up the stairs, that's kind of what <laughs> that's it was. That's kind of where time. we were. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's good as a good grounding to be prepared. You know, use make sure the supplies ready on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Any... Actually, that is a really good point. We have yeah. now made it kind of a, a company standard to make sure you have a list of people you can call on in the location. Uh, French polishers, upholsters, whoever it needs to be to rectify anything. And I always say to the team, the FF&E team particularly, um, assume the worst possible thing will happen and make sure you're, you've got a plan for it and then you'll be fine. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you, Aaron and Laura, for sharing your stories and your wonderful insights with us today. I think that that just goes to prove that the worst experiences definitely make the best stories. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Aaron and Laura, for your time today. We'd also like to thank our supporters, Parkside Architectural Tiles, for supporting us in 2021. You can find out more about Parkside at parkside.co.uk. Thanks, too, to Stereo Interiors for their support. For more information about their exquisite range of fabrics and wall coverings, go to stereointeriors.co.uk. You can find the interior design business on on-demand services everywhere. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood production.